This is the ministry from Sovereign Grace Reformed Church in Tiverton, Devon, United Kingdom.
can't inspect him, we can't study him, we don't have the capacity to do that. Job said that, didn't he, in Job 11. He says, count thou by searching, find out God, count thou, find out the Almighty unto perfection. It is as high as heaven, what canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? We cannot answer the question, what is God? No, we can't do that. Maybe we'll never really know that, I don't know. But what we can do is we can ask the question, who is God, in terms of what he has revealed about himself. And he has revealed himself. What an amazing thing. God, I'm not saying he's revealed everything about himself. I, I suspect he hasn't revealed that much about himself. He's revealed what we need to know and what we are able to contain, I suspect. But he has revealed himself, and he's revealed himself, as uh, Calvin says in his Institutes, he has revealed himself in two books, the book of nature and the book of the Bible. Those are the two ways God has revealed himself. The book of creation says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. We can see something of God in, in everything that's around us. Even, again, Calvin talks about this in the early part of the Institute. We can see a lot about God just by studying our own body. How fearfully and wonderfully made we are. Even how a baby is born and grows in the womb. All those things are declaring something about the glory of God. Paul says that isn't sufficient. It's sufficient to make us responsible, but it's not sufficient to lead us to salvation. So God reveals himself in the book of the Bible as well. The written record of God's revelation of himself to man, that's what this is. In different times, in different ways, God spoke in the past through the prophets, but in these latter days, in these last days, he has spoken to us one last time through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a paraphrase of the first two verses of Hebrews. This is an amazing thing for you and I, this morning, for the whole world, not the world's listening. But God has revealed himself so that we can legitimately ask and answer the question to some extent, who is God? Our text today is one of those very rare occurrences, in the, even in the Bible. It's one of those handful of occurrences in the Bible where we have a man who's given an actual glimpse or a vision of God and is written down. Now, there, were many, there were many who had a, a glimpse of God, but not all of them wrote it down. These accounts where a man has seen God, to some extent seen God, are being preserved in hundreds and thousands of trustworthy ancient manuscripts 
covering 2,000 years and more from the book of Job right through to Revelation and we have a record, we have records, written records preserved by God's providence of men having a glimpse of God and what more important thing could there be for us uh, and we can't do it all today but to, to study those accounts I read one of them this, in our first reading there are many others that you could read Job was one he said he said I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear but now mine eye eyes seeth thee wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes Job said God Patriarch Jacob at Peniel um, saw God, didn't he? He, he, named, he named the place Peniel um, because he said, I have seen God face to face and I have lived, I, I've seen God face to face and I've survived. And he said, I'm going to name this place the face of God. Moses, the great redeemer of the Old Testament, wrote many. Um, eyewitness accounts of seeing God. There's one that struck me was with Moses and, and, um, and Aaron and, and Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders. It says they saw the God of Israel. They, amazing. These people saw the God of Israel and under his feet were, was as it were a paved work of sapphire stone and as it were the body of heaven in its clearness. Scripture says that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. The prophet Micaiah said to the kings of Israel and Judah, he said, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, throne all the hosts of heaven, standing on his right hand and on his left. Can you picture that? He saw God with a and on the left hand were myriads of angels, and on the right hand were myriads of angels sat upon his throne. Ezekiel saw visions of God, it says, by the river Kibar. And when I saw it, he says, I fell on my face. Daniel saw the Ancient of Days. And he saw a stream of fire issuing forth from under the throne. And he saw thousands of angels, thousands of thousands and thousands who ministered unto him, and a hundred million, he says, a hundred million stood before the throne. What a vision he saw. Amos the prophet saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Peter, James, and John saw the divine glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Deacon Stephen saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of them as the stones crushed his body. The Apostle Paul had visions and revelations of the Lord. He saw the Christ, he saw Christ on the road to Damascus as one born out of due time. And the Apostle John saw God on his throne in heaven and the person sitting on the throne looking like a jasper and sardine stone 
And there was an emerald-like rainbow surrounding the throne. God's throne surrounded by a jeweled rainbow. And our text today is an account, a similar account, of a man, a prophet, Isaiah, having a vision of the Lord. And uh, this whole incident of, of Isaiah 6 is referenced by John in his gospel. He says, these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. So John says that this vision Isaiah had was a vision of the glory of Christ. And so we're justified in reading this in the light of the New Testament, in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This vision that Isaiah had um, has been called the Mount, the Mount Everest of, uh, of Christian experience or religious experience. This, this is a really amazing account. Even the others are amazing, but this is particularly clear, isn't it? This man seeing God. And the context of Isaiah 6. Um, it's just worth very quickly noting, because it may help us a bit. The context is that this, what's happening here in Isaiah 6 is that God is appointing Isaiah as the prophet. Of course, it's, some chapters have already gone past. This is chapter 6, but it's only really here that God commissions Isaiah. All the other chapters are really painting the scene, painting the... Um, the situation that Isaiah is facing. But here, God appoints Isaiah. He says, He go and tell this people. Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of the people fat and their ears heavy, and so on. He was commissioned to give a message of judgment. But there's also a message of hope in verse 13 it says, But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return and shall be eaten as a teal tree, and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Really what, what this is saying is that despite the destruction and the death, there will be new life. It's like a huge tree that's been chopped down and there's only a stump remaining but from this stump will spring new life. So there is a message of hope in the midst of judgment. Isaiah might be in metaphor of stumps and roots and branches and it's right through his prophecy. So that's the context. Isaiah's been commissioned the other thing to remember is, of course, that the long-reigning King Uzziah had just died. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. King Uzziah was a good king. He went wobbly at the end because he, he started doing things that only the priests were allowed to do. And God gave him leprosy. But he had been king for 52 years. Not quite as long as Queen Elizabeth. She was, 
she managed 70 years, but long enough for it to be a real shock to the nation that this king, who everyone was used to, was, who, was, who gave the, the uh, nation of Judah stability, was dead. It was a time of great upheaval, change and uncertainty. And it was at this time that God came to his servants in the year that King Uzziah died and commissioned him and gave him this vision of himself. And that brings me to the first point, really. Namely, that in this text, Isaiah is given a big vision of God. In this text, Isaiah is given a big vision of God. It begins with Isaiah seeing the Lord sitting upon his throne. Now, this, dear friends, is something which is a reality, it's a cosmic reality, if you like. Uzziah may have died, he's no longer on the throne. Kings and queens come and go, but there's one person who never leaves his throne. And he is the king not only of a, a country, not even, not even a country of an empire, he's the, he's the king of the whole of creation. He never leaves his throne. That is a fundamental reality of the universe. You won't read it in a physics book, but, but, it, but that is the, the underlying truth of everything. It holds everything together. He's sitting on his throne, he's ruling and governing and directing all things, big and small, according to the pur purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians. This is known as the sovereignty of God. It really means God is king. Not, as I say, even of a great empire like Queen Victoria, but king of the whole universe, the whole cosmos. And whether you like it or not, he is the king. He is reigning and ruling, and he's ruling over you as well. Um, he decides... You may not have a relationship with this God, you may not even like this God, but he is the God who decides whether you have a next breath or not. He's the God who decides where, when you will be born and where you will be born. He's the God who decides when you will die because he's on the throne. So, this is relevant whether you believe, whether you accept him. This is relevant to every single human life. He's, not, he's given you responsibility to make your own decisions for good or ill. It doesn't have a major robot. But he's, he's in charge. He's, rule, he's rule, the ruler of the universe. He reigns and rules. And ultimately the source of all authority and all power flows from his throne. Not from the United Nations, not from the White House, not from 10 Downing Street, but from the throne of God. He appoints kings, he deposes kings. Paul wrote, there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. You see, this is why this Isaiah 6, this record, 
ancient as it is and couched in old-fashioned language as it is, we can miss it if we're not careful. But this is the most relevant thing that we can understand today. This God is a real being, and this real being is ruling and reigning. And he's your creator, he's your life support, and after death you will have to stand before him and give an account to him of every word that you've said, every deed that you've done in your body. So you can't escape, this is wrong because you cannot escape this God. He sees everything, he records everything about your life. And like everything else in creation, from the smallest insect to the, to the seraphim around the throne, your life, my life, has one purpose and one purpose only, to fulfil the will of God. Now, depending on whether you love God or not, this is going to sound to you like either the most wonderful news in the world, um, it's going to sound like heaven to you if you love God. Well, this is going to sound terrible to you. You're going to feel like you're living in some kind of North Korean state with the big brother watching over you. Um, you either are going to see this as, as your heavenly Father planning the best for you, for your life, from protecting you, providing, even correcting you. Or you're going to see it as something approaching... I don't know, like the East German Stasi police controlling you and not giving you uh, the freedom to do what you want to do. Watching over you and interfering with your life. That's how the people of the world think of God. That's why they don't like the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. That's why Calvinism has such a difficult time getting traction because it humbles you into the dust. Because it means you have to bow before God's sovereignty. He's, he's on the throne. We're not on the throne. But whatever your reaction to this, it makes no difference to God. The facts are the facts. God is on the throne. And his throne, it says here, is high and lifted up. So you can't reach him to dethrone him. You can't reach him to bribe him or manipulate him. His throne is high and lifted up. He's transcendent. And this is what Isaiah first sees in this big vision of God that he has given. Isaiah also saw that God was in his temple and that his royal robes filled the temple. Speaking, of course, of the glory of God. The temple was the place where God's presence would dwell upon the earth and where he would display his glory. And he would clothe himself with light as with a garment. And the king of the universe would dwell with this, with this people, this nomadic, simple, peasant people, the people of Israel. An amazing thing. And in that little tiny room, the Holy of Holies, God would dwell with man in his temple. And uh, Isaiah sees the robe, the glory of God, filling the temple. But the most 
important and powerful aspect of this divine vision. I think the thing that had the biggest effect on the prophet was the holiness of God. He saw, when he looked, he saw that above the throne were seraphims. And these are described as having six wings, two to cover their face, two to cover their feet, and two to fly. Now in some respects, they, it appears that they, they looked, they looked to some degree like humans, um, we assume, because they have faces, they have feet, they have hands, and they have voices. We, we have all of those, so this is, this is um, conjecture, to, but I, it seems to me that there's something recognisable about them to us. But whatever these creatures are, we know from the Bible that well before God created the earth, he created heaven. Uh, heaven is a place, we sometimes forget that. Um, I'm sure it's heaven, I'm sure it's a big place. But it's something which he's created. Heaven is not God, God is not heaven. God created heaven as his dwelling place, it didn't always exist. He spoke it into existence, as he spoke the world into existence. And what he did was that he also spoke into the very atmosphere of heaven and he created, filled heaven with heavenly creatures. Know of them as angels and maybe a whole load of other creatures we, we don't know about. But he he created angels and he populated this realm with all sorts of creatures. We, we necessarily may not know much about them, but literally millions, if not billions, of them. And they're not all the same. Um, we know that there are different classes of angels, some are more important than others. There are ranks of them, but we know that they all serve God and on his command that they serve, they serve the people of God. We know that from Hebrews because it says, Are they not all ministering spirits who shall be heirs, sent to those who shall be heirs of salvation? So these seraphims that we read of here are one class of these heavenly angels. We're not meant to talk to them, and nor I believe are they meant to talk to us. I don't. I mean, I don't know that for sure. But I think once the Bible is complete, um, then perhaps uh, God no longer requires angels to speak directly to us. But nonetheless, they help us. They help. We as the church in ways that we're probably unconscious of. Um, but the word seraphim is the, is the plural form of, of the Hebrew root word seraph, which means to burn. So these so seraphim in the plural are the burning ones. We should transliterate the Hebrew. These are the burning ones. They're six-winged, fiery angels. And this is all very mysterious. But you know, God has created creatures for different environments, hasn't he? With the fish, 
He creates creatures that, with properties and bodies that are suitable for the environment in which they live. So fish have fins and scales. We, we don't need them, we're stupid. The birds are created with very light bones and wings so that they can use the current of the air. And we can go on and on. This is not biology. But you know, in the same way, angels, they're created for the environment of heaven. So these wings are needed for, for the environment that they're in. And these, the natural habitat of these seraphim is heaven, and more particularly, it seems, the area directly around the throne of God. That seems to be where they live, where they're made to be. And they, they are attendant angels, and they're the burning ones. They burn with love for God, and they have this constant chorus, one to another. One says, holy, holy, holy. And then the other seraphim replied back saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And there's this constant chewing and throwing of this chorus between the seraphim as they're attending God around his throne. And the one thing that they sing of constantly is God's holiness. And this is what Isaiah sees. He hears this song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And such is the power of this worship that the posts of the door move at the voice of him that cried and the house was filled with smoke. So the seraphim cover their faces and their feet. They have six wings. Two, they cover their face. Two, they cover their feet, which if you think about it, means that they, they will be covering their whole body. And they reserve two to fly, to do God's will. And they burn and they burn and they burn with love for God. And they do everything God says. We, 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 can, we can learn a lot from them, couldn't we? If we lived our Christian lives, like the seraphim lived their lives, They don't want to be seen. You see, they, they want to cover themselves. They don't want any part of them. They, not, they don't even feel worthy to look up and see God. They cover their eyes, their face, their body, their feet. They want to be as small as possible to get out of the way so that all the glory goes to God. Despite their beauty, and they're beautiful creatures, but they don't want their beauty to, to get in the way of God's beauty. They want everyone to see God's beauty. What does it mean to say that God is holy? At the very root of the Hebrew word for holy, the, the, the Hebrew word kodesh, is the idea of separateness or apartness. The idea that God is totally different from us, separate from everything he has made. The totally unique one. There is no other one. The Hebrews said there is no God like our God. He's free from 
all impurity from any imperfection. He's totally perfect. John says God is light and him, him is no darkness at all. At all, this is the definition of God John gives. 30 times in Isaiah, Isaiah calls God the Holy One of Israel. It's impossible to try and get this across what Isaiah saw. And I'm sure I haven't seen, seen it properly, but you know, if you and I could just catch something of this, it would change our, our lives. If we think of um, if we think of the sun for a moment, the sun. The sun is actually, as far as we know, the sun is unique in our in our solar system. It's the star at the very centre of the solar system. And it's said that 1.3 million Earths could fit inside the sun. Think of that. How big the sun must be. And this sun is a perfect sphere of hot plasma. And it's incandescently hot due to the nuclear fusion um, reactions in its core. And it radiates its energy out into the universe in the form of light and infrared radiation. Let me tell you, just to, this might help you to see what Isaiah said. The heat of the sun, the fire of the sun is nothing compared to the heat and the glory and the fire of that which flows from the throne of God. That's why these burning ones are the only ones that can, can live in that environment. You have to be a burning one to live there in close proximity to the, to the hot spot of heaven, God's throne, where his glory shines out like the sun radiates its light and heat into the whole universe. This is why Isaiah says, Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? So God, Isaiah, was given this big vision of God, particularly of his holiness. But secondly, he was given a revelation of himself, wasn't he? He was given a revelation of himself. In the light of such perfection of burning purity, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean limbs, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean limbs, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you know, Isaiah was uh, compared to everyone else. He, he, was, he, he probably had the, the cleanest lips of anyone in, in the nation of Judah. But even he, when he saw the holiness of God, he says he was undone. He says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And, and the first thing that strikes me is that, is that if you're the sort of person who says to yourself, well, compared to all my friends, compared to everyone else, I know I'm not too bad a person. I'm a relatively good person. 
then you, you don't know anything about this God. You know nothing of the God that Isaiah saw. Or even if you are a Christian, and I say this with love, even if you're a Christian and you think you're superior to other Christians, then you've not seen this God either. You see, if you've seen, if you've truly had a sight of the holiness of God, you'll have one reaction only is that to be you'll be humbled into the dust. Your flesh will melt away. Your pride will melt away. You won't compare yourself to other people. You'll compare yourself to God. And in the light of that bright radiance, all of us are unclean and undone. See, even, even Isaiah, the prophet of the Lord, is, is undone. Woe is me, for I am undone. You see, and we can miss this because of the, the Elizabethan language. But this is, this is saying more than just woe or oh dear or shame. What's happening here is that Isaiah is feeling what you might call an, ex an existential feeling of danger. He's, the word there is basically saying, I am coming apart at the seams. I'm disintegrating. I'm melting in the sight of God. Everything, all of me, is like I'm coming to bits. I'm dissolving. That's what the word means. It's like, well, he feels like one of those, perhaps he, like one of those brave miners in the as you won't be old enough to remember, but the, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in Ukraine in 1986, I think it was, where those brave miners, they, they, they went in to try and save the situation and they went into the into high doses of radiation. And some of them felt that they were, they were disintegrating. And you know, Isaiah must have felt the same. It's like, it, like he was having a hundred million chest x-rays all at once, perhaps. He felt like, um, he must have felt like he was in a region of space-time where the gravity of God's holiness was, was so strong that it was being consumed. I think one of the most terrifying verses in the Bible if you don't know Christ at least, is, is Hebrews 4.13. It says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This God that we're talking about here sees everything about your life. He sees every imagination of the thought of your heart that is only evil continually. And from the law courts of heaven comes the verdict, the soul that sins must die. And you know, if the story ended there, there'd be no hope for any one of us, would there? But there's one last thing I want to say. And it's this, that Isaiah had a big vision of God. He had a big vision of himself. But then he had a big vision of the grace of the Lord. Because we read of, of the fact that Isaiah received from God a cleansing from his sin.
deeply conscious that he was a man of unclean lips and that he was living in, among a people of unclean lips, he heard the best news that he could ever have hoped for. He was dissolving with guilt. But suddenly there's this gospel hope. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched my lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. This coal was a holy, pure object from off the holy, pure altar, where holy, pure sacrifices were made, the main one being the holy sacrifice of atonement. And the seraphim took the coal from the place of atonement and he touched Isaiah's lips at the point where he felt his sin the deepest. And God placed his forgiving, atoning grace just there and burnt his lips. And God said, your sins are purged, you're made pure, you're washed. And as the coal touches Isaiah's lips, the purity of that coal transfers to Isaiah's life. He thought he was going to be consumed, destroyed. Instead, instead Isaiah is transformed. And it's not until Jesus comes that we really understand what this life coal means. Christ is the one who fulfills all the ancient prophecies. Like the coal, Jesus went around touching people who were impure. Normally in the, Le in the, in the Levitical system, if you touch something impure, the impurity came to you. But when it comes to Jesus, it's the other way around. His purity goes to you. Your impurity never comes to him. The atonement, sacrifice, is that when Jesus touches the impure, his purity passes out of him into the impure love. And this happened all the time. He touched people with skin diseases. He touched people, he touched coffins. He touched dead people. He touched a woman with a chronic bleeding condition. All things which in Leviticus says will make you impure if you touch or do. And yet Jesus made these unclean people pure. He healed their bodies. He healed their minds. He saved their souls. Like that holy coal, he touched them just at the point of their greatest need. And he can do that for you today as well. If you, if you can see yourself in the light of God, you need his purity, you need his forgiveness, you need your sin to be purged, you need to be made right with him. And there's only one person who can do that, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the atonement sacrifice. Our greatest need is to be made pure in the sight of God. And the Lord Jesus came to make us right with God. God's holiness 
and his hatred of sin is the reason the Lord Jesus Christ came and he is the antitype of the atonement sacrifice on the Old Testament altar. He was sacrificed as the sin-bearing, sin-purging, wrath-propitiating Lamb of God. And Isaiah said, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Gospel, the cross of Christ, is the call of a holy God to an unholy people that they might be holy and be in a right relationship with their holy God. And he can make you holy and he can keep you holy. But only if you come to him. The only religion in the world where God can take unholy people, make them holy and keep them holy. Only in Christianity that can happen. I wonder if you'll come today. We have time to talk about the last aspect, which was having received this forgiveness, Isaiah receives the commission to go to be to spend and be spent for God, to go and tell his people, to go into all the world. And preach the gospel to every creature. That's our job. We who have received forgiveness for him, from him. We have a message of forgiveness to spread to all the world. Or today, dear friend, I hope you've seen something of the holiness of God. And something of your sin. And something of the grace of God that's available to you this morning. In Jesus' name. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk